Hello, everyone. I'm Brandon Adams, and welcome into what promised to be a very spirited edition of Cover 4 Live, even though it's not four people as a part of Cover 4 Live. Jeff Sintel enjoying some much-deserved vacation, so I've got Connor Riley and Mike Griffith on hand, and we're going to talk about the news of the day, and it's been very interesting to watch this all bubble up and unfold over the course of the last 24 hours, starting late yesterday with the Brent Zwerneman report from the Houston Chronicle that Oklahoma and Texas had reached out to the SEC about becoming the league's 15th and 16th members. I think in the immediate aftermath of that, just from you know regular fans, there was this assumption that, oh, this is the kind of talking season discussion point that will eventually be proven to be false at some point in time. And everything that has happened since then has certainly gone the other direction. More and more, it seems like this is, I don't want to say on its way to happening because actual league membership, I guess, is a different hurdle to cross here. But certainly what Zwerneman reported for the Houston Chronicle has turned out to be very real. Latest example of this, for those of you who may have been at work today, over the course of the last couple of hours, there's been multiple reports by big national college football voices, folks that pay very close attention to the sport, that a meeting of key Big 12 leaders took place today. Oklahoma and Texas were invited to be a part of that, but they weren't there. So it was the other eight schools besides Oklahoma and Texas which seems to only further the idea that as of now, Oklahoma and Texas are very serious about leaving the Big 12 and the SEC being the most likely landing spot for all of that. Mike, I don't know we've really heard you weigh in on this too much as of yet. What do you think about this possibility of, of, of SEC expansion, big names being added, and we'll get specifically to the Georgia part of this in a moment, but uh, what's your initial thought about the fact that this ball is rolling down the hill very fast at the moment. Yeah, I guess I'm still skeptical. Um, you know, I, I still wonder if this is a negotiation uh, for Oklahoma and Texas and the Big 12, see how much money they can get. I, I'm not sure if I really understand uh, how it would benefit the SEC in terms of added television sets. I mean, you'd add Oklahoma, you already have, you're already in Texas. Uh, so from a standpoint of your footprint, it doesn't really get that much bigger geographically or in the sense of adding value, um, you know, versus the television market. So, you know, it's kind of to me, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? I mean, you're going to lose something here. You're, you're going to alienate A&M. You're going to alienate Missouri. You're going to alienate Arkansas. Um, I'm just not sure what adding those two teams really does for the SEC versus, uh, you know, what it costs you because now you got to split the pie up two more ways. Yeah, that's certainly uh, a point to be had here. But as far as like a potential negotiation with the Big 12, it's also important to note the Lubbock Avalanche Journal reported back in May that the Big 12 had reached out to its TV partners, Fox and ESPN, about renegotiating the TV deal. Essentially, there was no one there to pick up the phone on the other side, which I think may be what's created some of the angst here in the Texas-Oklahoma camps related to all of this. Uh, Connor, how about for you? You had just left SEC Media Days yesterday when the news first dropped, and then everyone in Hoover, Alabama, been forced to react to all of this. As you've, I know you've also written about this at DogNation.com as well, but as you've been taking more time to consider this, your just initial reaction to this giant bombshell story, clearly the biggest of the summer. Yeah, poor timing on my part to have to get on the road to uh, handle some other projects, and then this happens. As I'm on the road, I, I, I think back, I, th- I want to say it was around May, maybe even April, when it was announced that the Oklahoma-Nebraska game was going to be a noon kickoff on Fox. And we never see this, but Oklahoma put out an official statement expressing their disappointment in this. 
I think if 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 Oklahoma and Texas were to leave the Big 12, Fox is pretty clearly a big loser in all of this because they lose a lot of TV property with the Big 12, whereas at least with ESPN, while they have Big 12 rights, as Oklahoma and Texas are going to stay within sort of that house. So it helps there. I, I, the other big argument that you're hearing is, okay, well, if the SEC doesn't grab Texas and Oklahoma, that means they're going to go elsewhere, whether it be the Pac-12, mm-hmm. the Big Ten, ACC, wherever that might be. I, I just – my thing with this is I, I actually do think this is going to end up happening. There's too much smoke out there already. And so because of that, you have to wonder about the shifts. And I found it really interesting today. Ross Dellinger pointed this out. The SEC network was batting around, you know, potential ramifications of this. And, and I find it hard to believe they're going to keep divisions because it just gets way too entangled up. Well, if you have to then move Missouri to the SEC West, you have to then move three SEC West teams to the East and it just gets really complicated. So I think we're going to see a massive shakeup, when it comes to the scheduling department, and while you know that might potentially mean some rivalries still get protected from there, in the SEC pod system that had been suggested, Georgia wasn't going to play Auburn on an annual basis anymore. Yeah. Alabama wasn't going to play LSU on an annual basis. LSU doesn't play Florida anymore on an annual basis. So it's going to drastically blow up the sort of traditions that college football has come and gotten to know, and a lot of those were changed 10 years ago, obviously. A&M and Texas don't play anymore. I'd imagine if they do to go to a pod system, A&M won't want to see Texas in Texas A&M's pod. And so all, with all this change that's coming, at the end of the day, I believe it's all about money. How does Texas and Oklahoma generate more TV deal and generate a really a better TV deal so that they can get their teams in primetime games, 3.30, 8 o'clock, as opposed to Fox, which does have a noon sort of slot as their big slot? Mike, I think Connor's bringing up a pretty good point here that if you want to move past the money of it all and start thinking about the tangible impact on the average fan, SEC schedules would seem likely to look very different. In fact, even Greg Sankey today in one of the interviews that he did did allude to the fact that you know a lot of this time of change could also result in a pretty big schedule change there as well. And you know the idea of two eight-team divisions does start to feel a little unwieldy that you'd either have to do you know, four four-team divisions. Connor uses the word pod, which others have used before there as well, that if you want to think about the practical ramifications of this kind of SEC expansion, very different-looking schedules would seem to be obviously a part of that. And I don't see how any way you could get around that. It, it simply wouldn't be the SEC schedule as we've come to know it. Now, for the good or for the bad, that seems likely to be true to me. Well, two things. One, be yeah, I would challenge you that this is I, – I, I would just – you know, and I, I'm not going out of my way to do this, but I really don't think this is the biggest story of the offseason. But two, I think it's a conflict with the, the expanded playoff. I mean, on the one hand, we're saying we want these teams to have a 12-team playoff and have a deeper postseason. But on the other hand, we're still trying to keep the schedule reeled in. If you add teams, and we already have a problem with the SEC in my mind, and that a lot of these teams don't get to play one another – you made the really good point earlier about the divisions. Uh, there has been talk about eliminating the divisions because you do want the two best teams to play in the league championship game is that's going to have a major impact on the teams that qualify for the playoffs. So to me, if you add another two teams, it's going to make it even harder uh, to come up with an equitable system to determine the two best teams because, as you pointed out, not everybody's going to get to play one another. So to me, these things, this would seem to be a, a bit of a – um, you know, uh, a contrast and, you know, you either want the expanded playoffs or you want more teams in the division, because I just don't think you can have both. And again, this is, this sounds good. And it's, it, it, you know, it, it's fun. And looking at four pods that the SEC network put out this morning, 
on the, the SEC Good Morning Show with Peter Burns and Chris Doring. That's interesting. The B-list um, team, as Pete the Mel called them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought it was interesting, but – you know, there's an old saying, you know, don't put too much salt in the soup, right? The SEC's got a pretty good thing going right now. And, and again, I just don't know what Oklahoma and Texas add to the SEC. I mean, guys, they haven't won a postseason game since 2009. For all the bluster and politics that the Big 12 throws out there, they haven't done anything in the postseason except get beat. So it sounds like you're saying, Mike, if you're a Georgia fan, this is not something that you, if I'm hearing you correctly, this is not something that you think ought, Georgia fans ought to be rooting for happen, to, to happen, or maybe you are. It, for, for Georgia fan in particular, Mike, how do you think UGA fans ought to view this for all the self-serving reasons that Georgia fans might be able to think of for this? Yeah, I, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters, you know. You don't um, think it matters. I mean, you don't think it matters to add Texas or Oklahoma to the SEC. No, neither one of them are better than Alabama. Neither one. Your, your hurdles, Alabama. As long as Saban's there, I don't think it matters. No. If anything, I think um, what it does is it probably uh, mitigates some of the momentum that A and M has right now. One of the reasons A and M's been able to build momentum is they're the SEC school. Uh, I think Texas joining would would uh, certainly fragment some of that talent, right? And I, don't, I think that would probably slow A&M down is probably, I, I, I would say, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, if you ask me who the most likely successor is to Alabama in the West Division after Saban retires or the tide slows down, I would say it's A&M with their resources and, and Jimbo Fisher. I would say it probably mitigates that somewhat. And, you know, to me, I, I don't think Oklahoma, again, I mean, Oklahoma hadn't won a playoff game yet. I mean, yeah, they won bowl games, but I mean, they have not won a playoff game yet. You've got to go back to 2009 to Texas to find a Big 12 team that won in a playoff format or a championship game in the postseason. Well, just to be clear, though, I mean, you can say it's good, you can say it's bad, but you can't say it doesn't matter. This is not adding I don't think Missouri. Well, this is not the hold, – hold on, Mike. Let me finish. This is not the SEC adding Missouri and Texas A&M, two teams for the most part that really never have won anything. I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are gigantic brands. I mean, they are the flagship brand of an entirely different Power 5 league. The only reason that Power 5 league exists is because of the, of the flagship branding that Texas and Oklahoma provides. The SEC essentially – uh annexing that i mean it matters like it's a good thing or it's a bad thing but it's not a non-thing well i mean i don't think it affects georgia's ability to win championships that's why i mean you might say it matters because you like it and it's fun well that's what we're getting to yeah that's what we're trying to get to road trips maybe here and there but in terms of when i think about you know and i guess i think in a more narrow sense of you know kirby's about winning championships and does this affect the championship drive you know, if Georgia recruited Texas more heavily um, or if Oklahoma or Texas were able to get into Georgia more, then I might say it matters. I think it would matter a heck of a lot more to Arkansas, to Missouri, to LSU, to AM, uh, certainly to Alabama even. They recruit Texas. You see them playing Dallas. Um, I think it matters greatly. And as for Missouri, I'll say this, uh, because I was critical of Missouri being added. Uh, they won the SEC East twice, right? Uh, you can't say that's nothing. A&M still hadn't won the West. Um, so I'll give Missouri credit. I thought they were a big zero. Um, right now they kind of have faded a little bit. You know, Eli Drinkwitz probably needs to, you know, control his comments better before you play Georgia. I, I don't think I would be challenging Georgia with any more measuring stick game comments. I mean, my goodness, you've got a noon kickoff in 30-degree weather at the end of the year for a Georgia team, and, you know, you, you poke the sleeping dogs with a – with a hot poker and say it's a measuring stick game. But 
I, I, Missouri has won the East twice. That's more recent than Tennessee's won it. Uh, I don't know that Kentucky's won it. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, who else in the East. When, when was you know, Florida, I guess, is has Florida won? Yeah, did Florida won the SEC since 2012? Have they won it? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember if they've won an SEC championship game since 2012 when I think of the most recent that I guess they've played in it. Um, so I think about the teams in the, in the East. Tennessee hasn't been there. Kentucky hasn't been there. Vanderbilt hasn't been there. That's three teams right there uh, that Missouri's won it more recently then. Um, Connor, is this a good thing or a bad thing for Georgia? How should your Georgia fans feel about this? Yeah, it's been about 10 minutes since I got to talk. I, I think I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing for college football because this isn't going to be the only domino from this. You're going to see the Pac-12 try and add teams, the Big Ten, the ACC. They're going to go and sort of reopen this expansion and Pandora's box, if you will, from there. And, you know, I'll push back on some of the things Mike said. I do think this makes it harder for Georgia to win a championship. I could absolutely see a team like Oklahoma. Well, yes, they haven't won a playoff game. Georgia did go toe-to-toe with them, and if the ball bounces a few more ways, maybe they do lose that game in the Rose Bowl there. And Oklahoma's coming to Georgia, and they've gotten recruits. They pulled Jaden Hazelwood out in 2019, the number one player in the state. So be careful what you wish for in giving both Texas and Oklahoma, I think, a greater opportunity to potentially come into Georgia. You look at Missouri, they've got a quarterback commitment in Sam Horn from Collins Hill this year. Being Having a, a presence in Georgia every other year I think really helps them. So – this is a, a, a very sticky situation for if you're Georgia. I don't think this is great for what you want to see because Oklahoma is a team that is still consistently, if they're not winning a playoff game, they're still in the upper echelon of college football there. And if Texas can ever figure itself out and stop fluctuating from back and not back, I mean, they could be a big problem as well for Georgia. And again, I think if you do go to 16 teams, you probably do away with divisions. And I don't know how you look at the SEC in recent years and say that Georgia hasn't, at least in some way, been helped by the fact that they're in the SEC East and they don't have to go through the regular gauntlet of teams that are usually better when they're in the SEC West. So let me push back against that for a minute, Connor, because your statement is you think it's going to be harder for Georgia to win a championship if Texas and Oklahoma are brought in. I certainly understand why you'd make that case, but I would argue that what's really held Georgia back in, like, say, 2018 to a degree in 2019, but really 2018 is where this comes to mind for me, is – that lack of opportunities to go head-to-head against some of the teams it's being compared to. In 2018, Georgia's essentially relegated to the kids' table because it lost a game close to Alabama. You don't get a chance to play Notre Dame in a head-to-head matchup, Oklahoma in a head-to-head matchup, the two teams that are putting the college football playoff. At at least with the 16-team playoff, or I should say the 16-team SEC leading to a 12-team playoff, you're getting more head-to-head opportunities. Now, you may win them, you may lose them. Obviously, a team like Oklahoma is still tough to beat, even if I've you know, got some questions about, you know, some aspects of the program. It's still a hard, it's still a hard game to win, but at least you get to play it head to head. The thing that Georgia suffers from right now is this situation where the second best team in the SEC is treated for the most part, no different than the second best team in any other power five league. That's the thing that hurts Georgia right now. And in a 16 team SEC, that can no longer be the case. You finally get a chance to, to beat the team head-to-head, at least theoretically, that's been selected in the playoff over you a couple of times. But I imagine by the time Texas and Oklahoma ultimately join the, the SEC, which I believe their current television contract runs through 2025, we're probably already looking at an expanded playoff anyway there. So at that point, the, the conversation, I think, anyway, shifts from, okay, can you be one of the four best teams to it's much easier to be, I think, one of the 12 best teams, whereas – 
Now, if you're playing a Texas or an Oklahoma every year, that game's going to mean a lot more in terms of getting into the 12-team playoff than, say, playing a Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt teams that Georgia just happens to beat every year because they have the benefit of being in the same division there. I think be careful what you wish for in wanting sort of this pod system if you're a Georgia fan because, again, I think they've benefited tremendously from not having to play an LSU, an A&M on a a semi-annual basis, and and the pod system is designed to get kids to every single school in the SEC – And Georgia benefits, in my mind, absolutely from getting to play Vanderbilt, Kentucky, South Carolina, Missouri over the course of an SEC East slate. Point of of order on just one thing. And gosh knows there's a thousand news reports that are out there. But my understanding is, is that neither of these two Big 12 schools would be looking to see the end of their contract with the league through here. Texas, I've even heard there's reports that are out there. They'd even be willing to forego some of the extra money they get as a way of breaking this contract sooner than later, even knowing all the the, the money that's uh, related to that. Obviously, these are still early days. We're still trying to figure this out. But for both of you, let me play devil's advocate on this for a moment because I, for the most part, agree with a lot of you saying, I actually don't think it's great for the SEC to do this, even though some fans kind of do. But, Mike, let me come back to you on this for a moment here and argue just kind of in favor of this because I think this is the thought that some fans have, is that – if we're about to enter into a rapidly changing landscape in college sports, better to be the conference that looks really strong here as opposed to the Big 12 that's probably not going to exist at all. The the, the Big 10 and the ACC, the Pac-12, that are now racing to catch up that, I mean, it is possible to get caught flat-footed on something like this, and at least the SEC is not going to do that. The SEC may not feel quite a Southeast anymore, something that I – we can value, but at least it still feels strong with the team teams and they're adding the two big brands like Oklahoma and Texas. And frankly, that's a level of strength that the other leagues, a lot of which, by the way, have very new commissioners there too. They'd have a hard time matching that. So from that standpoint, isn't that an argument in, in favor of the, of the expansion of the league? Yeah. You know, one thing Connor didn't mention, you're playing Auburn every year and I know Auburn's been down, but Gus Malzahn was pretty good. Cam Newton was pretty good. They won a national title. Uh, Gus Malzahn uh, beat Alabama a couple times. Those weren't those weren't easy games with Auburn. Uh, you know, I know Kirby spoiled some folks by winning lately, but Auburn's not exactly a pushover. In fact, I'd argue that Auburn is every – when you're talking about the Cam Newton and the early Gus teams, uh, I'd put them up against the Oklahomas and the Texas if we're talking about uh, the Cam Newton teams, if we're talking about 2000. You know, Auburn won in 2004. That was an undefeated team. That was a pretty good team. I think looking back, I think Oklahoma lost, like, I can't remember how bad that lopsided game was to USC, but I think we all went back in 2004 and said, man, we wish Auburn would have played because at least they'd have given USC a game that year. So I think playing Auburn in a crossover game is something that, you know, needs to be brought up. You're playing that team every year. Uh, As far as the East Division goes, Tennessee was pretty good uh, for a while there. They've got great resources, um, you know, much like Texas. Uh, and I would say uh, Oklahoma's in terms of what they have in terms of resources in state. I don't think it's any better than Tennessee. I just think they got a better coach and more momentum. You put them in the SEC and maybe they falter. I mean, there's been times Oklahoma's cycled down. Uh, there's been time Texas cycled down. I mean, you know, it was just a couple years ago when a, when a rejected, dejected Georgia team put a half-hearted effort out there, and and Texas was playing in a bowl game outside the state of Texas for the first time in ten years. It was their first 10-win season in 10 years. Let's not pretend that Vince Young is quarterback at Texas. Texas has fallen into mediocrity. Them beating Georgia was the highlight of the last 10 years. So I'm not going to act like Texas is all that. 
you know, I understand that they've got tradition and, and I understand you say they've got potential, but I think they've lost a lot of momentum. I don't know why you add them to the league and dilute your talent. Uh, same thing with Oklahoma. You know, they've been a postseason no-show. They've been embarrassed. Uh, you know, they played a Florida team missing four receivers and then Trask got pulled. But, you know, to me, uh, the Rose Bowl was a great game. You know, they had a Heisman Trophy winner. I thought that might have been Oklahoma's best team, frankly, uh, you know, that they've had in quite some time. So, you know, I'm, I'm not just sold on those names just because they're winning some watered-down conference. And I don't think you lose anything if you don't add them. Let them go to the Pac-12. You know, maybe that would make football more interesting because right now the Pac-12, what's it been, five years since Washington made the college football playoff? Um, it might be better for college football. And to me, I don't like diluting the talent pool. I like protecting the games. I, I wouldn't want to see the crossover game with Auburn go away. I think that's a great rivalry game. I think it's fun. I think it's part of the norm. Um, you guys are both traditionalists. You know, B.A. protects the cocktail party. Connor fights, you know, for the Georgia Tech game. I mean, Connor, what if you had to boot the Georgia Tech game because now there's 16 teams and you've got to play another league game? you got to get it somewhere, right? So I just think that there's unintended consequences. You know, right now, I mean, change is good and everybody likes different, but, you know, let, let's slow down a little bit. I mean, I just don't think you can go and, and, and add, you know, a, go to a 12-team playoff and then also add two teams. That's just – that's too much change too fast for me for what's already a great product. Uh, very quick here. Let's talk about how this does impact the rest of college football. I mean, uh, Connor, Mike brings up the point. I mean, what if Texas does go to the Pac-12? What if they do, you know, go to a different league? You know, you know, what if it's a league other than the SEC that benefits from this expansion? There aren't a lot of super teams for a super conference type formation. Does it hurt the SEC if if these so-called, you know, super programs doesn't don't don't become a, a super conference of the SEC if they if they go somewhere else. Is that the kind of thing that should hurt that, that would you would consider a, a negative for the SEC if that were to happen? I mean, I know it's been batted around the for a long time, really, uh, the, the idea of four 16 team leagues. But let's say Texas and Oklahoma do go to the Pac-12. That puts them at 14 teams. I believe there are 14 teams in the Big Ten and there are 14 teams in the ACC and 14 in the SEC. And you have Notre Dame continue to be an independent. I think that's a pretty great solution. And then, unfortunately, you have to figure out what you do with the rest of those 10 Big Ten or uh, Big 12 teams as it exists. I, 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 I certainly understand the point BA makes of, well, if this is going to happen, and it certainly looks like it is with Texas and Oklahoma pretty clearly wanting to be out of the Big 12 or at least the current Big 12 television contract, why not be at the forefront of this? I actually do think that's a pretty decent argument for the SEC wanting to bring them in because if they're not going to go here, you know, you don't want to be grabbing two lesser programs like, say, a Memphis and a Central Florida, theoretically, as you try to get to your 16 teams. So I think in that circumstance, I certainly understand why that's there. But overall, I don't like this. I don't think it's good for college football. Uh, it, it, as Mike brought up, it's a lot of change really quickly. And just because Texas and Oklahoma are unsatisfied with their television contract, a lot of that is because of Texas's own doing, quite frankly, with the mm -hmm. Longhorn Network and how that really blew things up with the Big 12 uh, 10 years ago with forcing Texas A&M and Missouri wanting to leave. So I absolutely think Oklahoma is an SEC caliber program and not just in, in not just in football, but in basketball and other sports. And Texas actually, I think, pretty well fits in with the Pac-12 sort of school type, as if you will, out there. They were first in the Learfield Cup standings this year. So, you know, while ultimately I, I think – Texas and Oklahoma are going to end up in the SEC. I don't think this is good for college football as a whole. 
I tell you, I'm really surprised. I thought I'd be the old man on the porch here arguing for, you know, history and tradition and keeping the Southeastern Conference what it's been before. And, you know, I was kind of forced in the role of devil's advocate here because uh, Mike and Connor both took a slightly different uh, take on this than I sort of would have expected them to. Let's roll on here on uh, Cover 4 Live and look at the other big news of the day for the Georgia Bulldogs. Good news on the recruiting front as – Four-star running back Branson Robinson makes his pledge to Georgia. This is not an unexpected headline for the dogs. This is the kind of thing that Robinson had been fairly open about, talking about his love for Georgia, calling them his number one school. And today, in a very uh, unmysterious fashion, chose the Georgia Bulldogs. Kind of this also comes at a time in which Georgia really needs some good recruiting news. I would say there's been little bit of a loss of momentum based on some recent decisions that did not go Georgia's way. And really, Georgia wasn't much of a factor late in those in those recruitments and in those ultimate commitment decisions does this give georgia the dose of recruiting momentum that it needs no i don't think it does well it's a great sign for the georgia program another well done job by del mcgee i think maybe the best running backs coach in america and someone who is deserving of a title well higher than that and every day that he is at georgia i think is a tremendous benefit to the program as a whole But if Georgia's going to get the momentum that they need to sign a top three class, a top two or top one class, which is what I think they need to continue to do, they need to win on the field this year. They need to beat Clemson. They they probably need to beat Alabama as well because I think a lot of recruits now are sort of back in that wait-and-see mode with Georgia where they're no longer the hot young prospect out there. I think that's going to Texas A&M a little bit. Ohio State is getting some of that shine as well there. I think this Georgia team needs to go out on the field, win, and show that hey, yes, we developed you in NFL talent. They had nine guys go in the NFL draft this year. But we're going to get you back in the playoff this year as well and back in playoffs as well because right now Georgia has the same number of playoff appearances as Washington, Michigan State, and Florida State. And obviously Georgia is a much better program than all of those. But at the end of the day, those are the facts on the paper, and Georgia needs to show two recruits, two elite recruits, Kamari Wilson, Deion Bowie, maybe even a Bear Alexander if that pipe dream still exists. That they can get elite, that they can take elite talent, develop into NFL talent, and get it into the college football playoff to where it can contend for a national championship. Mike, how about for you? This has been a kind of a weird summer for Georgia recruiting, where there are lots of big time visitors, and it seems like Georgia was in the mix here. But some of these recruitments haven't quite worked out the way that Georgia fans wanted them to. How much do you think Robinson's announcement today changes all that? You know, it's another brick in the wall. I mean, it's still early very early in the process, as we know. Uh, what was Tennessee last year around this time in the top two or three? So how the season plays out, what players uh, go pro, which ones say they're coming back. I mean, you know, kids are savvy. You know, they're going to go somewhere where they've got an opportunity. They're going to study the rosters. Uh, you know, not just recruits, existing players. I mean, you know, I, I'm in Charlotte today and spoke with Jermaine Johnson. I mean, here's a tremendous player. Just wanted more snaps, so he leaves. Well, now all of a sudden the defensive end room or the outside linebacker room doesn't look so deep. So, you know, I think it has more to do with the opportunities that Georgia has to offer. Um, You know, I do think there's a great tradition of running backs here that even before Del McGee, they had some pretty good ones. I mean, Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, Herschel Walker, no Sean Marino. Georgia kind of recruits itself um, when it comes to running back tradition and uh, certainly uh, Del McGee with a nice ad here. Uh, would be nice if Tank Bigsby was wearing a Georgia uniform. Uh, Kendall Milton was certainly a great find. I think Kenny McIntosh was a good pickup. I think we'll see that come to fruition. James Cook, maybe he'll have the season we've been waiting on. Uh, Zamir White, we'll see if the knees work out.
But last year's Georgia running game didn't do much for me. It certainly didn't do much against Florida when the dogs really needed it to. It wasn't there. Um, so I'm going to reserve judgment on whether Dell's the best running backs coach in the country. Certainly he's done a good job, and Kirby Smart uh, has a lot of respect for him and gives him a lot of rope uh, to manage those running backs. But uh, if I'm thinking about the best running backs in the country recently, um, I'm probably looking at the Alabama running backs room lately. Connor, I think one of the things that the Robinson thing reminded me of, and I'm not saying this is going to work out that way for Georgia, but kind of much the same way that in the summer of 2017, I believe it was June 27th, the date was when Zamir White made his pledge to Georgia, nation's number one running back at the time. And that kind of, it certainly seemed like it had the start of what ended up being, you know, kind of the the vanguard, if you will, for for some burgeoning momentum after that for Georgia's 2018 recruiting class. The timing of the way that Robinson kind of announces his situation here right in a similar moment during a summer when Georgia could have used some good recruiting news. The timing of those two announcements certainly feels similar, even if the end result may, it may be a little different this time around. Or, right, and I think you make a great point in bringing up that 2018 class because the way that class all sort of came together, it came in waves where you land Justin Fields, James Cook, and Adam Anderson shortly after the start of the season in early October after Georgia had beaten Notre Dame and then they beat Mississippi State. And then after they beat Auburn in the SEC championship game, they closed really strongly with Jamari Sawyer, Cade Mays, and Brenton Cox. And I realize half of those guys aren't here anymore and transferred to other Power 5 mm-hmm. programs. But the larger point remains, the recruits took notice of what Georgia had been building, saw tangible on-field results, the win over Notre Dame, the win over a ranked Mississippi State team, just beating them down, and then beating Auburn in the SEC championship game to get in the college football playoff. I think that's how, especially with the way the early signing period starts right after the end of the college football regular season. You think of a guy like Walter Nolan who's potentially going to decide that, a Kamari Wilson as well of IMG Academy. If they see Georgia win an SEC championship game or get into a college football playoff, that's absolutely going to have an effect on their recruitments. And I think that's the biggest thing at the end of the day that Georgia needs to go out and prove. 2020 was not a great year for this Georgia program, and yet they still went 8-2, and two, won a, power, or a New Year's Six Bowl game. They need to make that next step and show that, hey, well, yes, we've taken small steps back in each of the past two seasons. We are still right up there with the best teams in the country. And to tie this into the other recruiting story of the day with Denied and Sutton choosing a, a Penn State as expected instead of Georgia. I mean, Mike, if I could zero in on one area on the field where, I mean, obviously as a Georgia fan, you want you know all the areas to be great. But one area in particular where I think on-field results need to be demonstrated this year it is at that position that a guy like Dennis Sutton would have played had he come to Georgia, that edge rushing spot. Aziz Ojolari had a great year last year, only a second-round pick. You want your guys to, to have better draft success than that. And guys like Adam Anderson and Nolan Smith, I think, certainly have a chance to really break out this year. But if they don't, I mean, I hate to be the one to say this, but recruits are going to notice. And, you know, in the aftermath of, uh, of Smith and, and uh, uh, Anderson, this program not quite as deep at the edge rusher spot, at least in terms of proven commodities, uh, th- then we're kind of used to George being over the course of the last couple of years. I think a big year of getting after quarterbacks, a big year of playing defense on the edge. I think it's crucial for Georgia in terms of its on-field results, but also in terms of you know guys like Deny Dennis Sutton who do want to see how they'll be used at a place like UGA. Yeah, well, I mean, Aziz's draft stock dropped because of the degenerative knee issue, not because of the production level or the combine numbers. Uh, It was more about the physical, right? And the Giants felt like he was a first-rounder. Sometimes the medicals get in the way. I don't think that's a matter of development. Uh, And In fact, I thought Aziz was was developed pretty good. I think, uh, you know, Jordan Davis coming in as a three-star, 
going out as potentially a first round pick on that D line and Trey Scott helps out. Um, you know, Kirby does, you know, bring havoc. They do bring pressures. Uh, teams know that, right? They're going to throw the ball quickly against Georgia. You know, sometimes if, you know, there, there's a trade-off there. You're not giving up big plays. You're not typically giving up a lot of points outside of the, the two dominant offenses against Alabama and Florida. Uh, not many teams did much, quite frankly. Um, so I, I thought the defense was pretty effective. I, I don't see an issue with development at outside linebacker. I think Dan Lanning is a pretty proven product. I think they've recruited well. Uh, they they actually had too many great outside linebackers, you know, case in point, Jermaine Johnson wanting to go somewhere where he could get more snaps. Um, you know, there was a premium edge guy coming out of junior college that everybody wanted. So if anything, I think they've almost over recruited that program. I mean, Nolan Smith's going into year three and we're finally going to see him look relevant. Uh, Adam Anderson, I do think is an important guy to keep an eye on. I do think he's kind of Kirby's, you know, Frankenstein, so to speak because he can line up so many different places. I think he'll be an edge rusher, but I also know that they've talked about him playing in the star. We know that, you know, he, he runs a faster 40 than any of those running backs that Del McGee recruited. So that's kind of interesting too, that, you know, Anderson's four, four, seven was faster than cooks four, five, two, for whatever it's worth. Maybe they just had a bad day, but I like what they've done with the edge rusher. Um, I'm going to push back as you would say, and I'm going to say the quarterback room needs to continue to be the best position on the Georgia team because I think everything, you know, kind of flows from there. I think the receivers come. I think it makes for ex exciting and explosive offenses. I think we all agree that that Georgia needs to make that move this year and, and show they can become that explosive offense, and that will enable them to continue to attract talent on the perimeter and, and in the backfield. Running backs like to run into five- and six-man boxes. I mean, not everybody, you know, wants to be downhill. I mean, that's where Zamir's a little bit of a – not not really the fit that he was when he was recruited four years ago. Now you kind of want guys, you know, that are a little bit better in space that can catch the ball more naturally. That's the trend that I see for Georgia is running backs that catch the ball and play better in space. I don't disagree with you about the importance of the offense, but today there was a four-star edge rusher that at one point in time was seemingly training towards Georgia, ultimately didn't make that choice. And when you look at the, you know, congregation where a lot of elite talent is for Georgia right now, a lot of former five-star recruits, it's there in that front seven, that defensive line spot, outside linebacker spot, and, you know, a word that Connor might use a moment ago is potential. That's the word you got to erase from that, you know, conversation here this year. can't be potential anymore. It's got to be actual, tangible results. Recruits are watching this. Now, listen, uh, I think they're going to see some good things from some of those guys, but it, it's got to be more than just, well, this guy would have been a first-round pick if not for this, and this guy, you know, would be a first-round pick if he got a chance to play more. That kind of stuff is not going to work with the next generation of recruits. They're looking on both sides of the ball, as Mike alluded to, but they're looking on both sides of the ball to see actual tangible results that show up in January in national championship games and show up in April in terms of being called on the uh, Thursday night of the NFL draft. I well, wonder with, with I wonder with the edge rusher position in particular, think back to January, Dan Lanning very publicly linked to Texas, almost ends up leaving there before changing his mind at the last minute and coming back to Georgia. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of him, and you're going to see him a lot on the future head coaching list there as well. I wonder if the assumption that Dan Lanning is ultimately destined for bigger and better things to be a head coach at a program somewhere is, at least in this recruiting cycle, having some impact on the edge rusher and the ability to recruit those type of guys because 
they don't really know, you know, if A. Lanning is going to be there that long or even if Lanning is going to be the guy there on signing day when they sign with their potential program. And there, there are some things Georgia can do. You know, Xavier Story is a guy who they signed as a five-star in this past 2021 cycle, and there's talk of playing him an inside linebacker. I think you can move him down in an edge rusher spot. So it, while it's not great right now, I still think there's a lot of time for, for Georgia to fix this. But I just part of me wonders with Lanning and the success that he's had is maybe now being used against him a little bit as he is. I think we all sort of agree is at one point going to be a future head coach somewhere. Mike, I know you wanted to jump in. I'll let you do that. But Connor, just a quick follow up on that. I also think there's a chance maybe Smile Monning gets that look at outside linebacker a little bit. Too. That's certainly a point that? worth mentioning as well. Uh, Mike, you wanted to jump in a moment ago. Uh, no, no, ahead, I'm, I'm, I'm spot on with comment with uh, Connor's comments, B.A. Uh, all right, let's uh, transition here a little bit then, look some more at what happened at SEC Media Days. Uh, Mike, you've been at ACC Media Days is th- there as well. I want to talk about some of the key takeaways. You guys were both there longer than I was. I was really only there for a brief period of time, but obviously I uh, tried to follow that as much as I possibly could and uh, obviously you know, bring coverage there as well. Mike, what were your big thoughts about what you saw you know, Georgia sending JT, Jordan Davis, and, and and Kirby Smart, the questions they faced, even from some of those folks kind of outside the dog nation bubble. What did you think about UGA's appearance at uh, Media Days? And eventually we'll kind of get to Media Days in general, but just the Georgia Days part of Georgia portion of this first. What did you think about Georgia's appearance? Yeah, I, I liked Kirby's preemptive strike on expectations, right? We've, we've heard it the whole offseason, the, the now or never, the pressure. You know, you could just tell Kirby had enough when he gets up there and quotes some 19th century philosopher that he's, you know, that success comes to those who don't worry about it. And then he, he starts talking about how he's too busy to, to worry about expectations. And so uh, I'm always amused by Kirby and, and some of his media strategy, um, you know, with his, like I said, his preemptive strike. I, I like the way that, that JT kind of encapsulated uh, what's happened to him in his collegiate career so far. Uh, we did a story on that today on Dog Nation. He said, you know, my high school career went exactly like I wanted. College, it's been the opposite. Uh, you know, he, he really encapsulated, you know, what happened. USC, you know, you go five and seven, don't make a bowl. I wasn't good. Uh, he could have said my offensive line stunk and I never got a clean center exchange. And I was only 17, but he didn't. Or, you know, and I liked that he just said, hey, my bad, over with, moved on. Uh, then he said, you know, knee injury, come to Georgia, want to play. Knee's not ready, he says coach monitoring it and he just kind of got in and out of it you know because so much energy and so much time is wasted looking back if there's one thing about Georgia that there's there's not many things that I would be critical uh with the Georgia fan base about I really wouldn't I I think it's really one of the best fan bases and and um certainly one of the most supportive and loyal that I've been around but there's a lot of revisionist history and arguing about you know was his knee ready and who should have been the quarterback and you know, Mark Rick versus, you know, there's too much looking in the review mirror when you consider how promising the future is for this program, whether or not, you know, Texas and Oklahoma join or whether there's NIL deals. Um, you know, I thought Nick Saban, speaking of preemptive strikes, you know, saying that Bryce Young had a million dollars endorsement. You know, I, I would call BS on that. I, I think that Saban's very well aware that this is an area where Alabama could slip a little bit. Uh, Atlanta being the number seven major metro market in the country, certainly gives Georgia an advantage. Um, I think Saban is aware of that. Tuscaloosa, not exactly, uh, you know, the middle of the action. And not to say that the the kids couldn't make money there. I mean, the Mercedes-Benz plant's right there. Uh, Paul Bryant Jr. is a very successful businessman. But the fact that Saban would go out of his way to mention it, right? 
Um, you know, since when has he been the most, most forthcoming guy in the world? You know, why, you know, he's just going to trumpet that all of a sudden. The guy that calls the media out for rat poison, right, criticizes the media for complimenting his program. Uh, now suddenly he's going to brag on a player getting a million dollars for just no reason or, or supposedly getting a million dollars. I mean, that was advertising and that was recruiting. And Saban knows how to use the media probably as well as anyone. I guess my final point, Connor's got the clock running. I don't want to keep him off the screen too long. But uh, not having anybody make all SEC for the USA Today Network on offense or defense, uh, I thought was pretty interesting. Connor, how about your thoughts on the George appearance? What did you think about those guys there? Yeah, so this was the first time in, in over a year that we'd gotten to be in the same room interviewing people. And when Jordan Davis stepped to the podium, it was just really the first time. Cause, you know, you don't see like them fully when they're in a Zoom screen. He is just a giant of a human being. Like he, he was like considering like bending down to try and speak into the mics, not knowing how they were all going to work there. He is just a massive human being, and I think he's going to be a real asset for this program. I came away really impressed with what Jordan and JT had to say and how they handled themselves in front of the media. Uh, you know, there was a big discussion of all the Southern California quarterbacks that wrote a story on that. Matt Corral, JT Daniels, they sort of talked about each other. Uh, JT had a great quote about preseason rankings, preseason hype. Uh, when they say you're good, it's cool. When they say you suck, it's cool. That's sort of, you know, a, a very, I think, good way to look at things and, and, and enter this season. Uh, you know, Kirby Smart, he went up there for, you know, 20, 25 minutes and didn't and only really mentioned two players by name in his 16-minute opening statement there. <laughs> so I think he is trying to temper expectations, not want to gas anyone up. Uh, he, you know, did sort of let things be known about where they stand with the Reed Gilbert and how they continue to trend well there as well as some injury updates. But – Again, I came away impressed with what I heard from Jordan Davis and JT Daniels on, uh, I guess, Tuesday it was. I thought that if you want to c compare Georgia to another team that's going to be ranked in the preseason top 10, I, I thought that Jimbo Fisher's appearance at the big podium probably was a little more, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, explosive maybe than Kirby's was. You know, Fisher didn't shy away from the fact that they'd like to come after Alabama and things like that. Obviously, they play in the regular season. That's maybe a little bit more of a relevant question, you know. Georgia kind of sneaks in, sneaks out. There's really very little fanfare. That's exactly the way that Kirby Smart wants it. You know, I, I do think it's kind of interesting, Mike, and I don't know if you have an opinion about this one way or another, the fact that some of these other SEC teams seem to use their time at SEC media days to get a little bit more out of it. You know, I, I think Kirby Smart just wants it to be done. But certainly, you know, I'll make the comparison to Fisher. Now, most of what Fisher said got totally overshadowed by, you know, the Texas-Oklahoma news, which completely engulfed yesterday afternoon. But for the most part, you know, Fisher spoke with a lot of confidence, didn't shy away from the expectations for his team. It seems like he was maybe having a little bit more fun with that moment than maybe Kirby's chosen to have over the course of his last few years being at SEC Media Days. Well, I mean, he's making $74 million and he hasn't delivered yet. He hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't got to the SEC championship game. Uh, you know, Missouri's gotten to the SEC championship game twice since they joined it. And hasn't gotten that. there. And, you know, you could argue, you know, you could argue that Jimbo Fisher hasn't lived up to expectations. I mean, it, that was a tremendous investment. Seventy four million dollars. I mean, they broke the bank. That was that was like Nick Saban money when they made that deal. That was their Nick Saban plunge. But unlike Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher hasn't really moved the needle at Texas A&M. I mean, I don't know what you guys think. You might say they're getting better. And I suppose. But it wasn't so long ago in 2017 or 2016 when I watched A&M get off to a 6-0 start and beat Tennessee in a battle of top 10 teams, Kevin Sumlin's offense was tremendous. They couldn't finish the season, 
But my goodness, at the beginning of the first half of the years, some of those uh, someone A&M teams were as explosive as any you'll find and um, and prolific. Right. With it, you know, so I, I don't see, you know, Jimbo's off, you know, line play maybe is improved. But, you know, Kellen Mond to me was pretty boring. I don't think he's going to be anybody's fantasy football roster. That was the best they could do the last three years. I, I thought he was very ordinary. I thought when he came to Georgia, he got out coached. Um, you know, Jake Fromm, he gave, you know, he thought he could stop Jake Fromm and, and get the ball back. And, and Jake was able to get a first down. And in and, and what was that, the 2019 game, I suppose, um, got out coached by Kirby. Um, that was a depleted Georgia team. That was a window for AM to win that game. And I thought they got out coached. So I, I think Jimbo needs to talk a good game, right? I think he needs to tell the boosters. I think people are getting a little restless and, uh, you know, big talk. And all. that's not Jimbo's nature. All these coaches, they're very uh, calculated with with when and, and what they say, I believe. I don't think it's just, you know, what strikes the mood. Um, I think one thing we came away with feeling with Kirby was that, that he feels like he's holding a pretty good hand, right? He's pretty confident in JT. Uh, obviously, he loves Jordan Davis. It's a, you know, those are two guys to prop up there. Hey, come to Georgia as a transfer. You can be my starting quarterback, and I'll bring you to media day, and they're going to throw the heck out of it. Come to Georgia as a three-star defensive lineman. I can develop you into a five-star and bring you to media day. Um, so I, I thought those were two great representatives. I thought Kirby was comfortable. Um, whereas Jimbo Fisher, to me, looks like a guy that's scrambling. I think there's a lot of pressure on AM right now. Uh, Connor, how about the rest of the league? What did you think of anybody else who kind of spoke this way? I thought Lane Kiffin was funny. And in a way, I didn't expect him to be. You know, everyone he knows him. He was funnier than from, I thought he would be, too. I agree with you. Everyone knows him from his tweets and whatnot and his social media presence. But he's generally not that funny of a dude in, in press conference settings. He's much more of a, a keyboard titan, if you will. But I thought he was funny. I, I thought he sort of nailed the head, uh, hit the nail on the head when it came to the Bryce Young stuff. If you, if you can find it online, when he brings up Urban Meyer, just listen to the amount of disgust that he has in his voice when talking about him. That got a really big chuckle out of me there. And look, I, I know some people are skeptical of this. And yeah, it, it's not great when you're saying if you can go from just having the worst defense in the country to having just an average defense. But I like what this team could potentially do. I think Matt Corral has a lot of upside there. And as he enters his second year with Jeff Levy as his offensive coordinator and Lane Kiffin there, I wouldn't be surprised if this Ole Miss team is able to spring an upset on a more talented team like a Texas A&M or like an LSU. I don't know if they have the consistency so much to finish as the second-best team in the SEC West, but I think Ole Miss is going to be a team that creates a lot of noise and makes a lot of headaches for a lot of teams this season. Can I, Connor, can I give you my Lane Kiffin conspiracy theory for a moment? I can, yes. I think that Kiffin knew that Saban was lying about Bryce Young approaching seven figures with the uh, NIL money. And the reason why he kept bringing that up unsolicited was, I think, because we've seen him troll Saban before. This is the one thing that's not conspiratorial. Uh, Kiffin enjoys trolling Saban just a little bit. I think all of this was a very elaborate troll of Saban. I think Saban shot his mouth off. I think Saban knew he probably shouldn't have said what he said. That's one of the reasons why he didn't make any attempt to back it up when he spoke on Wednesday. And I think Kiffin was trying to blow it up into an even bigger story so Saban would face even more questions about it. What do you make of that conspiracy theory? Well, so look at where Nick Saban made those comments. They weren't actually in Hoover at SEC Media Days. They were at a high school coaching convention in Texas, a place that Alabama has recruited very well in recent seasons. But Texas has actually, and Steve Sarkeesian, they took Jeff Banks – who was a key part of Alabama's recruiting efforts in the state of Texas. 
Nick Saban knows he needs the state of Texas to continue to recruit well and to continue to build Alabama into what it has become. You think guys like Jalen Waddell, uh, Tommy Brockmeyer, a five-star offensive tackle in this previous recruiting class. So I think Saban knew exactly what he was doing. I just don't think he expected anyone from the media to be there and tweet it out and make it into this giant story that it has since become. I, I don't exactly think that Bryce – Bryce Young is nearing a, a million-dollar NIL deal. But, hey, as Lane says, good for him. And if that's the case, maybe he doesn't need to play against Ole Miss and LSU this year. As I said on SEC Country Live on Wednesday, it's a little bit like the puffery of, like, world's greatest boss coffee mug. It's like one of those things you don't expect folks to call you on it. But in this particular case, uh, especially when it comes to the ramifications of recruiting, I, I do think facts matter a little bit. Mike, you've been in Charlotte for ACC Media Days. Uh, what's that been like? Uh, I know you've had – some uh, conversations with Dabo Sweeney and others. What's your big takeaway from having been there in Charlotte? You know, just the poise and the confidence uh, of the Clemson team, the professionalism. I mean, this is a team that's that's been there and done that. They're very comfortable with the big game setting. They're extremely comfortable here in Charlotte. Uh, the players made it clear. I mean, this is a second home for them. Um, you know, I, I know we've, we've talked a little bit about what, does it matter. I know the tickets are 50-50, but – you know, Clemson plays in that stadium every year in the ACC championship game. They're really comfortable here in Charlotte. I mean, really, really cozy. Uh, that was something they all kind of smiled when I asked him about. Um, so I thought that was interesting. You know, Dabo, I, I put a story up tonight. You know, Dabo Sweeney, um, you know, when I asked him, it was kind of interesting. And it's kind of some perspective here. You know, I said, uh, you know, how would you compare Georgia now to the last Georgia team you saw in terms of Mark Richt, you know, Kirby Smart? And he, he said, well, that last, that, that last George team beat is pretty bad, so I hope we get a different version. I said, wow, that, that's a twist. You know, don't get me. I think Kirby's done a great job in certain facilities and the, the way they win, the, you know, the temperament. But I, I just don't think we should be so quick to forget just how great some of those Mark Rick teams were and certainly the 2014 game, a runaway in the second half and Gurley going for 198 and three touchdowns and 100. I mean, that's some pretty – now, that's some RBU stuff there. 198 yards, three touchdowns, and a 100-yard kickoff return. You know, that that's that's some RBU stuff. Chubb also scored in that game. Uh, they absolutely dominated, and, you know, to Dabo's point. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. Dabo also said, though, that that Georgia might be the best team in the country. And, and he was honest about this game. He said, you know, Clemson recruits Georgia. This is important. They know each other really well. And, you know, him and Kirby are there, – there's, there, there's, there's a big rivalry there. I mean – whether they play each other or not, it's a huge rivalry because of the amount of recruiting they do against one another. And now Georgia's basically raised the, the stakes with this $80 million football building that, you know, is it on par with Clemson's? Probably might even be a little bit nicer, right? So I, I think there's a lot of fascinating aspects to the game. But I think just the thing and the thing that struck out was just, just how comfortable and, and poised Clemson seems to be. Uh, Dabble seems to be with this game. And the fact that it's in Charlotte, they love it. You know, Connor, I did think it was really fun at SEC Media Days, all the questions that Georgia got about playing Clemson to open the season. And that, to me alone, is enough of a reason to play the game. I truly believe that attention is currency in college football. But if they're not talking about you, you are in really, really bad shape. And it's listen, it's hard to get folks talking about you in college football, right? It's hard to be a program relevant enough. It's actually hard to play in games that are relevant enough to get folks talking about you. But the fact that right now there's so much chatter, whether it be where Mike has been ACC media days in, in Charlotte or certainly what we saw in Hoover, Alabama last week, lots of questions for the Georgia contingent about that Clemson game. The fact there's this much chatter about the game to me demonstrates that Georgia has done something right by being in it. And 
obviously the result will take care of itself. But boy, I'm really excited about the fact that it's at the epicenter of the preseason conversation. Yeah, this is really what college football is all about. It's because it's not a sport like, say, the NBA or even the NFL to a certain extent where you're seeing the same teams all the time. This is a this is a sport where, you know, the Rose Bowl in 27 or I guess 2018 technically, it's the first time Georgia and Oklahoma had ever played against each other. And now Clemson and Georgia, obviously they have a storied rivalry, but these are two of the top 10 and, I, in my opinion, the top five teams in the country entering the season. And to get a game like that at the beginning of the season is something we don't get all that often. To really make it feel like it's guaranteed we're going to see a game between two great teams, at least mm -hmm. teams we think at the time are great, I, I think that really helps college football. It generates interest throughout its long offseason. It's got a longer offseason than any other really sport out there. And so because of that, it's great that we're able to talk and ask questions about it in the middle of July and have some tangible meaning come September 4th. Georgia's going to say, hey, you know, we're not quite worried there yet. We're not really focusing on Clemson. We're really focusing on ourselves and getting better there. And, you know, I understand that line of thinking. You don't want to burn out and then be tired of all the Clemson chatter. And then, oh, it's the week of the game and it's hard to get revved back up again. But it's exciting for fans. And I think this is a big reason why, or at least part of the reason why, Kirby went out and had scheduled games in the future against Texas, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Oregon in 2022 next year, actually. And Clemson as well as they have as many times as they will. So I, I do think this is like, – I agree with you there. It's a great thing for college football. And, Connor, I believe you had this in a story a couple of weeks ago. There's only been one matchup in week one ever between preseason top four rated teams. I believe I have that right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So it gives you an idea of the historic precedent. This game has a chance, obviously, depending on where these two teams get ranked in the official preseason polls, but it has a chance to be literally the biggest preseason week one game of all time. Right, and, and now I would just say I would caution against – extrapolating too much from that week one game because the other game you were referencing was number one Alabama against number three Florida State at the start of the 2017 season. And that Florida State team went six and six. So it doesn't necessarily mark an indicator of future success. But just think back to your, your Florida State, and obviously DeAndre Francois breaks his leg in that game and mm -hmm. really changes the outcome of the Florida, program, Florida State program. But it's an exciting thing for college football, and Georgia in particular, to really benefit from this offseason attention that I think is going to drum up interest in there. And if they win that game, that payout for Georgia is going to be huge because they're oh, yeah. going to have all the momentum at the start of the season. And in my opinion, they'll probably be the number one team in the country starting that second week just based off what they were potentially able to do in that first game. I mean, Mike, you love the college football conversation as much as anybody. I mean, I'm sure you would join us in saying to have this much talk about Georgia Clemson, just a good thing for the program because it ain't easy to generate that kind of chatter when you're playing, you know, some other teams sometimes. Oh, yeah, it's all sorts of fun. I mean, you know, and, this, and, the, and on top of it, not only is it a great game, but it's a great Georgia team. And, you know, the fact that, that Georgia looks to me to be a team that's on the verge of changing its personality – uh, you know, they've got the personnel to do that. They've got the quarterback. They've got the receivers. Uh, they've got the coordinator. I think Kirby has the desire. Um, but I think more than anything, you know, the, the personnel is there. I, I think Kirby would have done this last year if he could have. I mean, I'll never forget, Brandon, when he told us after the LSU game, he said, you know, we're calling the same plays on offense. They are. Our guys ain't getting open. Our receivers ain't running the right right routes. You know, he talked about a merry round of receivers with injury. So, you know, now it appears, though, um, even without George Pickens, who also, one more note, JT said is the best receiver he's ever seen. I thought that was a pretty interesting thing that he said um, when he was asked about the receiving core. But uh, I do think there's a lot of weapons. I think they've recruited the position well. This is where uh, Centel's Intel uh, would talk about all the great receivers they've re recruited and the emphasis they played on it, placed on it. 
And now, now it's payoff time. Now it's going to come against a, a Clemson front. And although I was talking with James Skalski today, and he talked about how violent, uh, you know, that, that Clemson front seven is. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it's just going to be a fascinating game. I mean, I, there's times I sit back and I go, man, you know, Georgia's going to, Georgia's going to win this game, you know, by two touchdowns. You know, I think about how bad Clemson looked against Ohio State and, and that mitigates guys coming. I said, well, if guys are coming back, who cares if they're not that good? I mean, if they couldn't stop Justin Fields, you know, why, why would we think they're going to stop Georgia, right? So um, I guess my thought there is uh, the Clemson offense has got questions. There's no Trevor Lawrence. There's no ETN. Um, you know, and again, that team got humbled by an Ohio State team that got handled by Alabama, right? And, you know, and Georgia was beating Alabama at halftime with Stetson Bennett. So a lot of transitive properties there, you know, but then I kind of circle back and I go, you know, Clemson's been in this stadium in big games before. They're very comfortable with this. And, you know, when I think about Georgia in big games, I mean, yeah, they beat Notre Dame a couple years ago, but they really weren't that impressive in that win. In fact, if they don't have the home stadium, if that's a neutral site game with Notre Dame in 2019, they lose. They needed the crowd there for those six motion penalties. And even then, you know, Camarda shanks a punt, Notre Dame drives. I mean, Notre Dame's driving for the winning touchdown. And that was a Georgia team that I thought was much better. Um, that was before they had all the injuries. So I don't even think George Pickens caught a pass in that game. You know, I guess I kind of go back and forth. Part of me thinks that at their best, Georgia wins big. I've seen Georgia kind of, you know, not look so good in, in, in a moment like that, you know. And so, I don't know. I'm excited about it either way. Thank you, Mark. Uh, let's, let's switch over here to our cover more here. I want to get some comments before we get ready to say goodbye. And uh, Epic Robinson and a couple of others brought this a moment ago about, look, the SEC is going to expand. Why not bring in a Clemson, Florida State, as opposed to uh, Texas, Oklahoma? And I think it's important to note, Connor, that that – Sometimes there's a huge difference between what you do on the field and what you do in the boardroom, your value from the bank account compared to your value on scoreboards and things like that. I think that the comparison between Clemson and Texas is a perfect example of this. Clemson's clearly the better team on the field and have been now for a number of years. But in terms of conference expansion and who brings more value to a league, Texas, by almost any measurement you want to point to, is just simply more valuable for conference expansion. I hate Texas. I don't like Texas. I don't like the the culture that Texas would bring to it. Connor gives you a horns down. I give you one of those there as well. You know, I, I don't want that bunch in the SEC, but the reason why most of us that don't want it are going to be powerless to stop it is because Texas, as a business goes, is just much bigger than a program like Clemson, who even though they're in the college football playoff every single year, actually from – you know, kind of a measurable program standpoint, it's actually a little smaller than some people realize. Yeah, Clemson's a it's a much smaller fan base than Texas. It's a, in my opinion, probably a smaller fan base than Oklahoma. And, and while yes, recent success from Clemson is undeniably better than both Texas and Oklahoma. I, I think w- when you're adding these two teams to the SEC, it's also important to keep in mind you're not just doing this in in football. You're doing this in other sports as well. Texas and Oklahoma in basketball is going to help. Texas, again, I mentioned earlier, won the Learfield Cup. The first time in over 25 years that Stanford didn't win it. It goes to speak of the overall strength away from football of the Texas athletic program. Oklahoma, very similar athletic profile to Georgia as well. They've matched up in some big-time sporting events and NCAA championships. So I, I think while, yes, Clemson and Florida State, if you're a Georgia fan and you want to see games closer to the state, of Georgia potentially played in Sanford Stadium, those might be the teams that you want. 
But from a business standpoint, there aren't two bigger fish out there than Texas and Oklahoma, the teams that, as you touched on earlier, B.A., are really the ones propping up the Big 12 right now. Mike, Keyway L.A. trolling a little bit in the uh, comments section talks about Georgia's drought of having a 1,000-yard receiver. You think that changes this year? Wow, that's a tough one, B.A. It's a 15-game season. Um, I, I think the potential is there. If it doesn't happen, it's only because there's so many weapons and this offense is more predicated on going where the defense ain't. So, you know, to me, Jermaine Burton has 1,000-yard receiver potential. Um, I'm not sure if I believe Eric Gilbert does quite yet. He's still learning the offense, right? If, if he had gone through spring or if this was year two, he has a 1,000-yard season talent. But because he's new to the offense, um, yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm 50-50 on Burton doing it. I, I think Jermaine Burton's going to have a really big season. I'd like to point out that that Terrence Edwards got 1,000 yards in 12 games, making it all the more impressive than if Jermaine Burton does it in 15 or whatever. I I know you all know Terrence is my guy, so this is going to come across as self-serving. His stats, as being a senior in 2002, they still hold up phenomenally, not just in the Georgia record books, which obviously, you know, they uh, stand alone among none. I mean, he still holds up pretty well in the SEC record books there as well. I mean, I'll – I mean, as I said before, you know, he's a, a good friend of ours in Dog Nation Daily. We have him on all the time. He's a great guy. Uh, this is going to come across self-serving. But I'm just telling you right now, Terrence does not get credit for the stats that he put up. Not at Georgia, not compared to the rest of the SEC. In fact, that he's that lonely dude in the 1,000-yard uh, club at Georgia kind of tells you really all you need to know about that. But to a follow-up on the, on the uh, point that Mike was making, we have not had a college football playoff national champion, which dates back to 2014 that has a leading receiver that's had less than 900 yards receiving. Uh, Most teams have had a 1,000-yard receiver. In recent years, teams have had multiple 1,000-yard receivers. We've never had a playoff national champion to have fewer than 900 yards receiving in a year. Uh, Andy Helms also weighs in on this topic, and Andy, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, saying we have lots of receiving talent, but no 1,000-yard receiver this year with the Pickens injury. And, you know, I guess, Mike, you know, it does kind of come back to that a little bit of – it seems like in the immediate aftermath of spring practice, the media, for the most part, I mean, national media here, was treating Georgia as it had weathered that Pickens injury storm pretty well. I mean, what do you think of this team minus the player that most of the people at the beginning of the calendar year would have called, you know, one of Georgia's very best? I'm sorry, B. I, I don't know what happened, but I lost my my volume there for a moment. So uh, can you hit the reset on that? I apologize. Just uh, a quick thought on George without Pickens. That came up in the comments section. Yeah, well, I mean, this. I don't know. I, I don't think there's any – losing George Pickens hurt. I mean, he was going to have a 1,000-yard year. He was going to have 100 catches. But you got Eric Gilbert. Uh, that helps a little bit. But I think it forces JT to spread the ball around more, which ultimately may make Georgia – a little bit tougher to defend. I mean, the catches Pickens made, though, I mean, he was so – he was an amazing receiver. He was such a go-to guy, and he, it didn't seem like he made many drops. I know he had one drop in the Mississippi State game in the end zone, but Pickens came up with those incredible catches on third downs. He was that guy. Um, it remains to be seen if anybody can be that reliable. I don't think anybody's got the catch radius, but I do think now if you're a defense, you're going to be challenged, right, because we talk about Jermaine Burton. We talk about – Kiaris Jackson. We talk about Darnell Washington. We talk about uh, Adani Mitchell. We talk about uh, Marcus Rosemary Jack Saint. We talk about Eric Gilbert. We talk about the backs. We talk about Brock Bowers. 
Uh, we're waiting to see if Dominic Blaylock gets cleared. He has not been cleared yet. That was kind of – I thought that was pretty newsy. I mean, it, you know, it is 11 months. Um, but I think this is a team that's very versatile and will be very chameleon-like week to week based on the teams they play and the game situations. Waylon Harper and Andrew Hughes talking about Darnell Washington. Connor, um, I'll give you a, a little bit of a hot take here. I think Darnell Washington has more receiving yards this year than Eric Gilbert does. And I say that as someone who is a massive fan of Gilbert's, but I just love Washington in that traditional tight end role and the things that may happen for him. That's a big flip from where I thought I would be, but I think Washington's in line for the bigger year. I think Georgia has to be committed to using him, especially in games where, you know, you think to you look at why tight ends have so much success at the NFL level. It's because in a field with elite athletes everywhere, the best of the best, they still have a matchup advantage. At the college level, that because Georgia has such a wide talent edge over most of the teams it's going to see in its regular season schedule, the only way I think Darnell Washington has, I think the year you're describing, is because Georgia decides that's where they want to go with the ball. He want they want to make him a featured focal point of this offense because I, Jermaine Burton is certainly a capable athlete. Karis Jackson is good enough at getting open. Had George Pickens been healthy, I, he would have as well. So it, it, to me, Darnell Washington's success, it's not really predicated on Darnell. It's predicated on how much Georgia wants to use him and incorporate him into the Georgia offense. Very quick, Mike, you got a final thought? Anything you want to say from uh, before we let we go here? Yeah, you know, I had a chance to speak with Mark Rick today. I uh, spent some time with Coach in his room talking about his, you know, revelation last night, the disclosure of the Parkinson's, uh, why he did it. We just posted a story on that. I think people would find that interesting. And, um, you know, just, just such a such a classy guy, you know. Um, you know, spending time talking with him about this Clemson game and his memories of the past games and certainly his time as a Georgia coach. I just – I think he's a real treasure – and I know we're all excited about the, the present we should be, and I know that's where our focus is at. But, um, you know, as Georgia and Clemson, as this game approaches, you know, I think it's it, it really is a good time to really appreciate Coach Richt and, uh, you know, the success that he had. I know he had, you know, success against Clemson in that last meeting. And, and you know, even as he does his television shows, uh, even with this recent diagnosis, I mean, uh, you know, this guy is a spirited champion. I think he's a tremendous ambassador. Uh, for the University of Georgia, and I'm I'm really thankful as I get to know him even better. Mike, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I don't know much about the health outlook when it comes to Parkinson's disease. Has he talked much with, either with you or in any point in time during ACC Media Days about the prognosis and what the possible level of treatment is? I'm embarrassed to say I don't know much about it. Yeah, I don't think he's really dived too much into that. I think that, you know, he revealed it BA because he has lost some balance and you know, he has slowed down a little bit, right? It's apparent when you see him, um, you know, he's not moving like he typically uh, did, you know. So um, as far as the future of the disease like this, I, I know he's going to continue to do ACC broadcasts. Uh, he was here broadcasting from this event. And by the way, uh, this is going to sound crazy, the upset of the offseason to me. And I know people don't really care too much about media food or media events, but uh, much more grandiose um uh, by the ACC than the SEC. I mean, they're they're trying harder here. There was more people here, uh, more impressive uh, setting. Um, you know, just you know, they had the the mannequins for all the. T- I mean, it was very very. It was like Wait, what were, kind of mannequins did they have? Well, they got the you know every every team. You know, they got this. They had every team's uniform with a mannequin. They had like a football field with the mannequins lined up on both sides. I mean, it was just it just had a presence to it. 
um, you know, that you don't see like the details were much more detailed and all the little things they were doing. The interview settings were much better. They spoke at the podium, but not for as long. Then they would go to breakout rooms where you could stand in front. And if you, again, if you go to dog nation, you'll see my video with Dabo, you know, I'm standing five feet in front of him. And he's, he's waving and telling me I flashback from Alabama. I mean, if you're in the Hoover you know, room, you're in the back of the room and the guy can't even see it's dark out there, you know, but there, I mean, you're right there in front of them. You're one-on-one and, you know, you can ask DJ Ungalele, uh, you know, uh, five questions, which I did. And we'll have a story tomorrow uh, on him. But uh, just a much better, better run event with, um, I think, better questions. And, um, again, I, I, wouldn't, I did not anticipate that the ACC uh, would have the better event, better run event, um, and the better access event. But, but they did. I have been there before. It is a great event. They feed you really well there, which obviously matters to a porker like me. Uh, Connor, how about a final thought from you before we get ready to say goodbye? Yeah, I would just say, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with Coach Rick. My grandmother suffered from Parkinson's, and there's a very good chance I have it one day as well. It's an incredibly terrible disease that is really degenerative as it goes on. And, you know, years five through ten, it gets really bad and really tough. And so – uh, you know, Mark Rick is an incredible man. I think for a long time he was an incredible ambassador, ambassador for the University of Georgia and represented this school as well as I think any head coach can. So, you know, he's got a lot of people behind him, a lot of former players who are incredibly supportive of him. And it's going to be a tremendous fight, but I can't think of very many people out there that are better equipped to fight it than Mark Rick. I'll also add to that the horrible diagnosis and the announcement this week about uh, the pancreatic cancer for uh, Bobby Bowden, someone who's a great mentor to Mark Richt and also someone that a lot of the college football community, whether you be a Florida State guy or not, has had love and affection for for a long time. So these are tough times, and sometimes the uh, news of the day reminds you of serious things happening in life. And so obviously we're busy on our knees in prayer for all of these figures as they and their families go through all of this. Well said, Connor. Mike, thank you for being here there as well. I know it's been busy travel for you as you've moved about from Hoover to Charlotte now on your way back home there as well. So please be careful as you do that, y'all. Uh, thanks for being here for Cover 4 Live tonight. I'll have Dog Nation Daily tomorrow. Very surprised, not surprised so much as it is uh, uh, just uh, unorthodox. A Friday appearance from Connor Riley on the show tomorrow. We'll talk Oklahoma, Texas, SEC Media Days, and obviously a recap of the Branson Robinson good news, maybe a little bit on the DDS bad news and everything else in between. So a lot on the website there as well, dognation.com. Y'all have a great, great uh, week. We'll see you here very soon. Pretty soon this show returns back in its weekly format as Georgia gets ready to start practices again there as well. So a lot of fun on the way as the 2021 season approaches. Have a great night for now, though. We'll see you soon here on Cover 4 Live.